You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. There are all kinds of things in life around us that we see on a weekly, if not daily basis that maybe seemingly make no sense to us, but they actually have a purpose. They have a purpose that we didn't even realize until someone like Eric tells you this in a sermon introduction. Let's take, for example, those cold weather hats that people wear in other cities of the world besides Miami. Unless it drops down below, you know, 70, then we put them on. Those beanies, if you will. A lot of them have balls on their top. Do you know why those balls are there? It's not so the parents can easily reach and pull them off of the head of the child. Those balls were first put on those hats because the French sailors, when they were cold, in the different naval ships, would still have the problem of hitting their head under the the ship in the different areas, and that would be there as a point of protection to keep their heads from being hurt while they're yet still being covered because of the cold. What about door handles and houses and businesses? While this might not be common anymore for seemingly decades, it seemed ubiquitous. Every time you saw a door with a handle, that door was brass. Was that just a style decor? Was that just like, well, that was common then, but we do something else? Well, maybe you don't know that studies have shown that uncoated copper, brass, or bronze begin neutralizing bacteria immediately, killing more than 99.9% within two hours. The brass door handles is actually to eliminate germs that always be transmitted when people put their hands on door handles. What about those jeans that you have? Or maybe that you used to have, and you don't have these kind of style jeans anymore, but those rivets on the different sort of parts of the pockets on the backs or the fronts, those rivets in different places, is that just kind of a style decision? No, those rivets are actually purposely placed there because that would be the common point where the stitching would come together with the fabric and it would commonly tear. And to extend the life of the jeans, those rivets would protect the jeans from tearing otherwise more commonly. What about that drawer under the oven in your kitchen? You think, well, that's just there to store all the cookie sheets and the baking tins. It's actually not there for storage. That drawer underneath the oven is there as originally designed to keep the food warm that came out of the oven until it's ready to be eaten. That's where the food is supposed to go. And most people are like, gross, I'd never put my food down there. I know what you're thinking. Speaking of the kitchen, what about those pots? with those long handles. You ever wondered why they have a hole in the end of them? Some of you thinking, yeah, because the people who like hanging all their pots up somehow lobbied to have all pots made so they can have holes in them in case they want to hang them in their kitchen as a sign of decor. That's not why they exist. They exist so that you could set the handle of the spoon or the ladle you're using in that hole to prop up the handle so it would, it would lean over the top of the pot versus having to set it down on the countertop, making a mess. You're like, huh, that was worth coming to Grace Church. Thank you. 
And the list goes on. The bottom line is that stuff happens that doesn't seem like it makes sense until it does. And all of a sudden it becomes clear. Well, this is the nature of faith. Faith is not the abandonment of reason. It is trusting in someone or something in a way that might otherwise appear, at least initially, to be confusing at best and foolish at worst. For example, take the Christians in this room, and not everybody here this morning is a Christian, but most people here are Christians. Take the Christians in this room this morning. Christians in this room trusted a man from 2,000 years ago whom they have never met in person to save them from the wrath of God that they otherwise deserve both now and at the end of their life. And they've never met the man. But they believe that that man is actually not a normal man. He is the God-man, the Son of God, who came to save sinners from their sin. That seems suspicious for some, foolish for others, but a point of relief for most here. Well, today we come to a text of Scripture that upon initial reading seems confusing at best and foolish at worst. But once we slow it down, we realize why God's people are called to do what they are called to do. Here's the main point we're going to learn this morning in Joshua 5. We are to put our trust in God, not in ourselves. We are to put our trust in God, not in ourselves. If you've not done so by now, let me ask you to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, maybe just new to Grace Church, it's our practice to go through the books of the Bible together in different orders and different occasions. We were recently in the book of Galatians, known in the New Testament, a letter that Paul writes to the churches in South Galatia, where now we're in the book of Joshua, a book much earlier in the history of society, written by a particular man to a particular people that has... Interestingly, particular points of application for us even today. Joshua chapter 5. We're going to learn two lessons for the sake of our time today. The first lesson we're going to learn is obedience to the Lord is right even when it appears foolish. Obedience to the Lord is right even when it appears foolish. Follow along as I read Joshua chapter 5. We'll just do verse 1 for now. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who are by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. We'll stop right there. Now, for those of you who are new to joining us on Sundays here at Grace, or those of you who maybe forgot or maybe missed last Sunday, we've been working our way already from Joshua 1 to where we are presently. What just took place in Joshua 3 and 4? Oh, something miraculous. The walking through the Jordan River. It was like Red Sea Part 2. The earlier generation had that episode take place 40 years earlier. Here they are now, the descendants of that earlier generation, having their own moment where they see the miraculous work of God, and they have walked through. Now, just in case you're thinking suspiciously, I doubt this really happened. I mean, I can imagine there'd be people here today who skeptically think, I mean, come on, 
Did Jesus really say that he was God? You might be sort of embellishing this. I mean, this story in Genesis, or excuse me, Joshua chapter three, like stopping in the water, is that just sort of like a sensationalizing of the fact that kind of a lunar moment, the tides changed somehow in the river and it got diverted because they had some overflowing of creeks and this is somehow trying to take credit for what not really is anything except naturally explained. Just to be clear, a bunch of people who did not believe in Yahweh, certainly not followers of him, did not believe in his word, they were convinced. It was not open to debate or a misinterpretation. They knew quite clearly, wow, there is a God who goes with them. And this God is for them. Now, you can see the significance here, what, came, what took place in verse 1. They had great fear. That's what it says there. This idea there, the significance of how they responded. Their hearts melted. What you have to understand is at that time, the common way in which these different people groups viewed deities, gods, the idea of religious expression was not uncommon. It's like it's unique to the Jews. But what was unique to the Jews is that their God appeared to actually be the real God. Because unlike Israelites, other people's deities, they were largely people and geography based. Like as long as you stayed in your allotment of land, with your people, your God cared for you. And so that was kind of like a geographically based area. This is what makes it so significant to sort of recognize in Joshua chapter two, verse 11, it says, the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above all and on earth beneath. This is Rahab in Joshua two. Why is this so significant? She's saying this. She's like, basically the whole earth belongs to God. Doesn't matter if you're on that side of Jordan River, this side of Jordan River, whether you're in Egypt, whether up here where we live, it doesn't matter. It seems like everywhere a person can go, God's there. Which is exactly what God says in Psalm 139. It was 40 years earlier, back in Numbers 14, verse 9, when Joshua, being a younger man, coming out of the time where they were spying on the land originally, with the 11 other spies, 10 of which would not believe that they could do it, Numbers chapter 14, verse 9, Joshua said, Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, for the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And 40 years later, Joshua's like, told you. Told you. Except Joshua's probably too godly. He didn't say that. But I probably would have been saying that. As one author says, before Israel has fought a single battle, the entire land is hers for the taking. I want you to not forget the worship service the Israelites had back in Exodus 15. We'll have to turn there, but just listen to this. Part of the song that they were singing back Exodus 15, a passage we've looked at before, says it was looking ahead that Israel, even who had not yet entered the land, that the nations would be cowering in terror before them. This is why I want you to see what goes on. So we've got these verses here, Joshua chapter 4, verse 23. You can see this where it says, The Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. But then Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, the verse we just got finished looking at, it says, The Lord has dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over. It's a point of remembrance, and the people themselves realize, man, we're in trouble. No matter who you talk to, they recognize this. Even thinking back in Rahab's words in Joshua chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, 
She says, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And now look here in Joshua chapter five, verse one. They heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel. Their hearts melted because there's no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. There is this repeating theme in Joshua. The theme is they hear, they fear, and their hearts melt. What's interesting is this embarrassing commentary on God's people. And that is sometimes the people who do not believe in the Lord believe in the Lord more than the people of the Lord do. That's an embarrassing commentary. And this continually comes out throughout the text. Notice the reaction of the people is one of constant fear before any military encounter has taken place. And then look at what they're called to do. All right, we've got them. They're ready. Here we go. We're going to attack. Verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives, circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath, Haroth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Friends, we'll talk about circumcision in just a second here, in case that seems very confusing to you. But I don't want you to miss sort of the obvious point here that might be missed after maybe for you might be your first reading of this text this morning. If you've just crossed over the Jordan River and you've been told by the spies who before, they, before you crossed over, hey, the land is ours. And then you cross over the Jordan River for the purpose of battle. And the, all the people's reputation about you is they're all scared to death of you. You know what you think we should probably not do? Take a break. Submit our entire male military to a surgical procedure. You're like, okay, this does not make any sense. If there ever was a time to attack, it's now. It's now. You think you should read chapter 5, verse 1. They're super scared. Their hearts are melted. Chapter 5, verse 2, charge. Chapter 5, verse 2, it's like, okay, now we're going to have circumcision. I'm sorry, what? Not only does this seem like the wrong time, it also seems like the wrong place. Somebody's had, certainly had 2 million people, some had to certainly think, shouldn't we have done this before we crossed the Jordan River? Uh, shouldn't we have like taken care of this issue before? Why now? 
Well, there's, depending on the optics, there's a lot of reasons why now. You, the text, in one sense, describes to us why now. The reality is, is that the people of Israel were, as these males to be born to these households, they were to be circumcised. This goes all the way back to Genesis 17 as to what, what was even circumcision? What did it even mean? What is, what's the point of that? Well, just to summarize it for you without, for the sake of time, Genesis 17 describes that every male living with Abraham was to be circumcised, and in addition, every newborn male born after that was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcision was ultimately a sign of God's covenant with these people in particular and the blessings that it would bring. The Mosaic law, which came after the Abrahamic time, further required that the males must be circumcised to participate in the Passover. The circumcision symbolized God's protection of them and also their faith in God. It was a metaphorical significance. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, the Israelites are to circumcise their hearts and cease being stubborn because it signified their idea of a proper attitude towards God that they would be before the Lord pure. Now, to be clear, circumcision was not unique to the Jews. There were different points in history. Different ethnic people groups did this as well. For a time, Egyptians did this. For a time, Ethiopians did this. Even some of the people that they're about to encounter, some of those people did as well. The Amorites, the Ammonites, for example, the Moabites and the Edomites. But later on in history, the Greeks or the Romans would do this. This is why it became an issue in the New Testament. People in the New Testament are like, wait a minute, well, are we to be followers of Christ and we're kind of following in the old lineage of what's written in the Old Testament? Should we be circumcised if we're not born Jewish? It's a common conversation. In fact, there were even some teachers who came along and said this. And they're like, hey, Jesus was circumcised, John the Baptist was circumcised, Paul himself says in Philippians 8, he was circumcised, you too, if you want to be a follower of Christ, should be circumcised. And Paul basically, as we saw in the book of Galatians, jumps in front of that train and says, over my dead body, you're not to be circumcised because no obedience to the law earns you favor with God. That was simply pointing to your heart being addressed. Paul makes an argument in Romans where he speaks of circumcision of the heart as being the true reality in Romans 2. You come back now to our text in Joshua 5. If they're going to face a group of enemies, they didn't need to be militarily strong. They need to be divinely blessed. And God was not going to bless them if they're not going to be obedient to him, which including them returning to what they had not done since the previous generation, they had not been circumcised. And so, as he explains why they're to be, that they would need to be obedient to the Lord. What's significant here to recognize is that the relationship they claimed to have with the Lord was more than simply a claim they could make. It was demonstrated by the action they would take. Doesn't that sound awfully familiar? A claim that someone makes without an action that they've taken brings the claim into question. 
For someone to claim I am a Jewish member of the people of God and I've got the Abrahamic blessing upon me as they would have claimed then, and for having that promise and yet not being circumcised, God's like, you want to be very careful there. Are there not yet people today who claim to be Christians and yet have never been obedient in the simplest of things like we saw even this morning with baptism? That is, after all, the first thing that Jesus taught. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not because baptism is the replacement New Testament for Old Testament circumcision, by no means. It only comes upon a person's faith in Christ, not their children, but to recognize the reality that there was this ritual of circumcision that was indicative of a relationship. And here's where you want to be very careful as you listen to my words this morning from Joshua. Ritual without relationship is meaningless. They were claiming a relationship with which they looked like they were really showing it. They need to be obedient to the ritual that God was calling them to. It's a sign of that promise. But there are other people who claim because they had participated in that ritual, circumcision, they just by default had God's blessing. This is a mistake sometimes people even make today. You heard the young lady, Genesis, say this. Because she was born in a Christian family, because she had gone to church, because she had learned these things and done other things, she was okay. Somehow that those rituals were somehow claiming the right standing. And it was only the recognition of faith alone and Christ alone because of His grace alone that one could be hoped to be forgiven. Notice what it says in the text of Joshua chapter 5, verse 8. When the circumcision of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Again, it seems counterintuitive. Um, to recognize it's not that we need to do this procedure, it's that we need to now recover from it. We need to now recover from it. To have been circumcised and have to wait around for them would have made them very vulnerable to attack. They're not on the other side of the Jordan where they kind of have this land protection. They're actually now seemingly exposed, open to military counter-strike, if you will, even though they've not even struck yet themselves. And yet they had to trust the Lord. No matter how seemingly nonsensical it seemed to them or how fearful it would have tempted them to be, they would have to trust the Lord. Why? For there is nothing else they could do. Christians, listen to me. Nothing has changed for you today. Nothing has changed. There are so many times when you and I are called to trust the Lord that it seems like it's the exact opposite thing we should be doing. And certainly not the thing that others are telling us to do. I remember uh, on the eve of moving back to Miami with my wife and kids after being gone for 20 years, uh, one of my non-Christian friends was like, wait a minute, let me just see if I get this straight. So you're a pastor of a church here in Indianapolis, 25 acres, three-court gymnasium, soccer fields and baseball fields, 800-seat sanctuary church. It's all paid off. Church is going well, starting a seminary. Your family is fine. You live two miles from that church. Your kids have free college education in the state of Miami if they go to college here. And let me just see if I get this right. He's like, you, you're telling me you think you should step down from that job, move back to Miami, a city you've not been in in 20 years, to plant a brand new church, start a new church for people you've not even met with money you don't even have? 
And you don't even know if it's going to work? This is my friend. He literally said these words to me. He said, I think you're an idiot. This is the most foolish thing I've ever thought I would ever recommend someone to do. He's like, in my world, that's like taking a perfectly good company that you own and, and then saying, you know what? I'm going to just step out. I've got no money. I'm going to step out. I'm going to go start a new company. And it could be a total fail. He's like, that just seems reckless and irresponsible. I was like, yeah, I know. That's how it works so sometimes to those who don't understand. But I would rather follow the Lord's guidance through the conscience he's given me, the word I'm reading, the counsel I'm receiving for the good of others who have not yet heard of him. I don't want to just pray. I want to act. But I'm not alone in that. What do your friends or family think you are a fool about when you choose to follow the Lord than do what seems like it makes sense to do? I mean, after all, some would say, well, you've not paid off your student loan debt. You've not bought your own house here, your own condo. You've not given enough to your own retirement account to seed that thing fully, and yet you're choosing first to give to the Lord financially from what he's provided from you? You're seen as a fool. Your mom or your cousin or your coworker knows a nice guy that they think you will like and possibly even want to marry if it works out. And yet you have made a resolute decision that you will not date someone who is not a follower of Christ because you don't want to be casual about dating, but instead intentionally recognize its purpose is to lead towards marriage of which the Lord has commanded in his word that you should not marry somebody who's not a Christian. You are seen as a fool by your family and by your friends. You are given an opportunity for a promotion at work. It will come with more pay, a better position, This seeming is why you got your education to begin with. But it will cost you more time away from your spouse and possibly your children and certainly time away from your time in fellowship with other Christians. Your boss says, this is a no-brainer. Get it while you can. And yet you choose to let the opportunity pass because of what it will cost you. You are seen as a fool. You have finally done it. You've worked your way through a long career as a bus driver or a corporate lawyer. Retirement has finally arrived. Your friends ask you about the places you're going to travel to and the things you're going to go do. Instead, you surprise them with something they did not expect and they've never heard anyone say to them yet. You are going to invest your newly given time in the lives of younger Christians in the church who need help that range from knowing how to build a budget to knowing how to study the Bible to knowing how to make it through a difficult, life-dominating sin that they seem stuck in. You are seen as a fool. Just like the Israelites who crossed the Jordan River, who've got their enemies on their heels, and they're going to have surgery and wait. Because the Lord said to do it. And they trust the Lord's word. No matter what they think otherwise, and what others would counsel them otherwise. They trust the Lord's word. And they don't, do not mind being seen as fools in the eyes of others. If they're wise in the eyes of the Lord, trusting in him. The second lesson, you are provided for in various ways, but it's always the Lord who provides. You are provided for in various ways, but it's always the Lord who provides. Uh, the text continues in verse 9. It says, and the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gigal, 
to this day, which, by the way, that word means to roll. Verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gagal, they left the, excuse me, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Verse 12, and the manna ceased the day after the ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now, to your defense, you maybe went from one confusing text to another, so let me help, I, prov- I hope, provide some clarity of what's happening here. What's happening here in verse 9 is this idea that they have basically been the laughingstock of Egypt. People would make fun of them. They're the ones that kind of the punchline of the joke. I mean, after all, it was 40 years earlier, they were told to be let out from Egypt to go get into the promised land. And mark my words, do you know how long it's supposed to take you to walk from the Red Sea to the promised land? 10 days. Literally, that's all it takes, 10 days. You know what they've been doing for 40 years? Walking in a big circle. That makes people laugh at you. That makes people go, are you kidding me? Those people are morons. What kind of God they're following, I don't know what kind of faith they have, that, that makes them foolish. And that's what he's back, basically what he's saying here in verse 9. Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Basically saying, listen, what you've done in the past, that's in the past. It's like a fresh start. What came out of the Red Sea and then failed in the wilderness now comes out of the Jordan and will succeed in the promised land. Friends, this is significant because even for us as Christians, we can sort of reflect on this. There is so often times in the new Christian life a reality that we come out of a past that embarrasses us. We have made decisions. We have gone to places. We've been in relationships that we wish we could say was not true. We wish it was a case of a mistaken identity. Wasn't that you that I saw? Weren't you the guy that I knew? Weren't you the couple that used to? And we'd like to be able to say, that wasn't me. That was somebody else. But the, Egypt, the Israelites, rather, they could not. There's two million of them. They can't be like, where are they at? Can't see them. So often as Christians, even coming to faith in Christ, we still live in the Christian life with an overwhelming burden of guilt and shame of what we've done before Christ. Or tragically and sadly, what's been done to us by others who are not in Christ. And he gives them this place called Gugal, this, this landmarker, that they call it this to basically be a point where, hey, at this point on, your story is different now. You're not known for being the same person you used to be. Their gagal for us as Christians is essentially our cross. Our cross is where we are reminded from that point on, our sins are forgiven. Our identity of the old versus the new has been wiped. We are, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, new creations in Christ. Behold, all has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And then what they do once they're at this place, they have what's a Passover. For those of you who are not Jewish and don't understand Passover, maybe you don't have any Jewish friends to understand it because it's still a practice for many today. 
Passover is a Jewish festival celebrating the exodus from Egypt and the Israelites' freedom from slavery from the Egyptians. Uh, the, the Feast of Passover, along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was the first of the festivals to be commanded by God for Israel to observe. Now, what goes on in the book of Exodus and continues throughout the page of Scripture that follows is that God promised to redeem His people, first from Pharaoh, but then ultimately from the greatest enemy they could ever face. And so God spared them by literally the sacrifice that he would make on their behalf in the sense that they are the lambs that they would otherwise slaughter in their place. And the blood across their doorposts that the angel of death would not come upon their households and their firstborn would live. Well, this is significant for us. It's significant because we can see the reality is even though they're in a different place, they're not to forget what God has done. And they're to continue that. This would be important for the history to come until Jesus arrives when he introduces himself as the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. But then lastly, look at what it says here in verse 12. And the manna ceased the day after the aid of the produce of the land. Now, again, a lot of you are new to the Bible, don't understand what the word manna means. Manna literally comes from a Hebrew translation that literally the word means, what is it? That's like what manna means by translation in Hebrew. What is it? I don't know that's the question. I'm like, I know, but what's it? I don't know what it's called. I want to know what it is. They call, I can imagine, what, is, what are we having for dinner? What is it? I'm, your mom's making what? She's making, what is it? You'd be like, I'm so confused. I'm trying to ask you, what is it? Like, I know, what is it? That's what we're having. Manna was something that the Lord provided earlier for them. And it's significant because it was a reminder that God provided for them when they could not provide for themselves. And he didn't just do so for a day or for a week or for a month. He did so for 40 years. The record of Scripture talk about how even their own sandals would not wear out as they wandered during that time because of the consequence of not believing the Lord. God miraculously provides for them this bread from heaven. Uh, no one quite knew exactly what it was. It was refer- referenced as bread that the Lord has given you to eat, Exodus chapter 16. No one really knows the chemical composition of it. All we're told in Exodus 16 is that it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And they ate it for 40 years. And it's a significant reality, and I want to highlight this for you now because this is the last time it gets referenced in this kind of context, and I don't want you to miss it for those of you not familiar with what goes on in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, because manna, as mind-blowing as God is and what He does for us, when I asked you, why does God do what God does, and you're like, I don't know, in the same way I ask, why is that hole in that pot at the handle, or why is that hole in the cap of the pen? Why are these things happening? Why did God give manna? It was not simply to provide for them physically. It was to point to someone he would provide spiritually. Like, you're just making that up, Eric. Well, you would be right to say that if I came up with that. But Jesus himself says that. Manna was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Later on in the life of Christ in John chapter 6, after Jesus miraculously feeds the 5,000, they wanted him to give them the bread 
this bread always. Jesus tried to get the attention of the physical bread onto the true bread of life. Listen to what Jesus says in, man, in John chapter 6, verse 32 and 35. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Yet the people couldn't get it. They couldn't get their minds off. Yeah, great, great, great. Thanks for the spiritual devotion. We just want more bread. More bread. And the agricultural society, just give us that crop. And yet, just as they could not believe it, the spiritual manna saves them. Jesus would later say in John chapter 6, same chapter, later verses, verse 49 and 50 says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. What does that have to do with Joshua 5? They continually on a daily basis look to God to provide for them. And for 40 years, the provision was manna. And then in verse 12, the provision moves to the crops of the field. But the entire time, God was providing for them. That's not just true physically. It was also true spiritually. As 1 Corinthians 10 says, the Lord would lead them and provide for them. Christians, that's the same truth for us to recognize today. God provided every step of the way, and he is still doing that for his people today. If only we would have the eyes to see it and the faith to believe it. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.